0: You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with L.D. and T.J. Can you dig that, baby?
1: (laughs) Hey, guys. Welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, L.D., along with me for the ride, as always, is T.J. Oh, hey. So we actually want to start this episode off by apologizing to our listeners for not having a show last week, but Murphy's Law was kicking us in the teeth really hard. We had recorded this episode previously, so uh, Tracy's going to feign confusion and shock and awe because she has already heard all of this before, but we had some sort of like technical difficulty and literally like four hours after we recorded, Tracy left on vacation. What for do you
2: mean? I don't know what, 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 who, who's that?
1: Yeah, so we're really sorry, but, you know, everything happens for a reason and we're here right now, so. (laughs) (laughs) Today we're going to be doing a two-parter on someone that you probably don't even know at all, probably. And uh, the reason why it's a two-parter is because everything in his early life builds up to his death at the age of 23. Another youngin'. Yeah, very young, and this is actually our first unsolved mystery. Ooh, cool. Yeah. Oh, my God, do you you remember that show? Are you kidding? That's literally what I fall asleep to every night. (laughs) Where do you find it? Prime. Oh, my God, I used to love that show. It's on Prime. They have, like, 12 seasons, 22 seasons or something. That's crazy. And literally Robert Stack, his voice just lulls me into sleep and <laughs> it's, it's great you are someone you know have information about this person please contact <laughs> <laughs> it's,
2: pretty, it's so great it's such a
1: spot on robert stack right <laughs> oh i used to watch that every week with my mom it is i i actually think that there's an episode on bobby fuller i just haven't gotten to it yet that theme music though like yes. the 90s synth yeah it's so great it's so good so today we're going to be talking about Bobby Fuller. And like I said, this is an unsolved mystery. So if you're hoping for closure by the end of the episode, you're not going to get it. This is part one of two parts. And it's also the reason why Tracy will not let me read books anymore.
2: Yeah, pretty much. It was supposed to be a one part episode. And under normal circumstances, it would have been. But it turned into 23 pages of research from a single biography. <laughs> and she's not allowed to read books biographies for research anymore
1: is it because i'm a woman yes it is because (laughs) you're a woman okay so my main source for this particular episode was i fought the law the life and strange death of bobby fuller by miriam lena and randy fuller who is actually bobby's brother and that's why it was so in depth was because it was actually written from his brother's perspective, but Randy had good stories. So, uh, There was an article called L.A. Confidential by John Ratliff, uh, Phoenix News Times, an article called King Bobby by Robert Meyerowitz, and He Fought the Law, an article from the Houston Press by Chris Lane. So he was born Robert Gadsden Fuller on October 22nd in Baytown, Texas, to Lawson Fuller and Eva Lorraine Barrett. And his parents had met in 1936 when she was waiting tables. Lorraine had been previously married to a young man in El Paso by the name of Tommy LaFleur. And by, like, everything I read, Tommy had a serious drinking problem and was really abusive. And so she couldn't take the abuse anymore. So she took their young son, Doris Franklin, and his nickname was Jack. And so for the rest of the story, their son will be referred to as Jack. And she left. So hubby number 1 is kid is Jack. Yes. Hubby number 1 Tommy spawned son spawned Jack. Spawned Jack. Yes. Kay. And uh we're going to have to reiterate this a few
2: times <laughs> to help y'all follow along cuz it gets complicated.
1: Yeah. The first pass I there was a whole lot of a who is this again? <laughs> yeah. But it Jack, I don't actually keep a lot of the stories about Jack in This episode, but Jack himself would get into a lot of altercations. He would get into fights. He would get into a lot of trouble with the law. And so that's the reason why I'm kind of still melding this together is because when Bobby eventually dies under mysterious circumstances, I feel like a lot of his history leading up to that point is so vital to what happened to him to understand where he was coming from and what he was kind of tangled up in. And so that's why this went from being like eight pages to being 24 edited. Before Lawson met Bobby's mother, he was working at a shipyard in Corpus Christi, Texas. And he was married to a woman named Mitty, M-I-T-T-I-E. And they were having difficulty in their marriage and that led to divorce. And they had two children, Joyce and Donnell. So they had Joyce and Donnell. So the three kids are Jack, Joyce, and Donnell. Oh, wait, it gets better. Mitty married Adele Snell, and Joyce and Donnell lived with them, but Lawson had visitation rights. So. Is Lawson Tommy? No. No. Lawson, Lawson is, is Bobby's, Bobby's dad. Bobby's dad. Okay. <laughs> See, I'm telling you, folks. It gets a lot easier when, when the characters get pared down. <laughs> well, it's really horrible how they get pared
2: down. Well,
1: yeah. I'll, I'll let you but... explain that. Yeah, so, Mitty married Adele Snell, and Joyce and Donnell lived with them, but Lawson had visitation rights. Wow. Okay, so... <laughs> Who's keeping track of this? Who's, Who's making on- a flowchart? Who's on first? Who's making the tree here? It's like, if you ever saw... Carrie Fisher's wishful drinking. She actually pulls out a flowchart of her family. And I feel is, like
2: it's really helpful, in sometimes it's like it's like Game of Thrones mapping
1: right now. It's it's very convoluted, but it gets easier. I promise. Okay. So one day Adele and Donnell Snell. <laughs> it's, it is. I don't mean to laugh, but geez. Well, you they it rhymes. I know. So, so Adele and Donnell were actually on their way to an oil well. Don't laugh at that. You're kidding. <laughs> Adele and Donnell Snell were on their way to an oil well. This sounds like a
2: weird limerick,
1: <laughs> like, it's like Dr. Seuss.
2: Yeah, Dr. Seuss. There we go. Yeah. Are you sure? Are you sure that Randy wrote this and not Dr. <laughs> Seuss?
1: Well, I think Dr. Seuss is dead. So, yeah. Well, how old was the book? Like three years. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so they were driving to an oil well. And they lost control of the car, and Adele was driving, the the dad, the stepfather, was driving the car, and it actually flipped over, and Donnell was crushed underneath the car. And he died later at the hospital, and he was actually only 15 years old. Aww. Yeah. So, his parents got married, and they had been married for six years, and then little Bobby arrived. Cute. And... What happens next is kind of starting a trend. Their father got an offer to work in the oil fields in Midland, Odessa, and other areas in Texas where there was ever new drilling of wells. And it paid well, and so his father took the job, but the family was always kind of uprooted and on the go. And so Bobby's little brother Randall was born two years later on January twenty ninth, nineteen forty four. So he's got a little brother now, two years younger. And again, kind of like with Stevie and Karen and who else? We had we've had si- like carriage siblings, like the yeah. siblings that 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 are always with them throughout their mm-hmm. musical history. And so Randall, I feel like, is kind of that second part of Bobby's life. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure that's the best way to say it, but that's the way I'm going to say it right now. And it's also 907. And so I can already tell We're you. We're just getting started, folks. <sighs> we got this. We're already <laughs> done. We're almost done with page one. Uh, Bar- Bobby started first grade at George Arbin Elementary School while his brother started kindergarten. And for the record, this is why I bring this up. It's not just like filler. Buddy Holly was in high school at the same time in the same town. That's really cool,
2: but also really sad that they never played together.
1: Yeah, and it's it's really interesting as you go through. I do have parts of this in my notes, but Bobby was heavily influenced by Buddy Holly. So they lived in Lubbock, Texas for 2 years when their dad got an offer to move to Farmington, New Mexico, where they had just discovered oil and gas in the San Juan Basin. And by Randall's account, this was actually the happiest time in their life. Farmington had the personality of the Old West with, okay, and this is in quotes, this is not me saying it, it is Randall saying it, the Old West with Indians and cowboys, hunting, fishing, and virgin wilderness. So it was kind of like a kid growing up in the, I don't know, 50s, 60s, where kind of the heights of, like, Westerns were. Yeah. And, like, having room to play and friendly faces and... You know, all this room and space, and it's kind of a kid's dream. Right. So Bobby, who was born in 1942, (laughs) that's how (laughs) I cleverly slip it in. Exactly. Uh, Farmington was the beginning of Bobby's musical life, and he was already playing the cornet at school. Sorry that I'm laughing at that. I just never picture someone being like, one cornet, please. I chose that instrument.
2: Our school, when you wanted to join the band program when you were young, they actually did like instrument testing to see what your ideal fit would be for the band.
1: And mine was the cornet. And I said,
2: no, I'm playing my flute.
1: Really? Because I literally, I would have rather played. Literally any other instrument than the flute.
2: For those of you wondering what the heck we're talking about, cornet coronet is kind of a, another version of a trumpet. The little baby trumpet, it's right? It's like a smaller, it's a slightly smaller version, yeah.
1: So he was playing the coronet at school and he and his brother both took piano lessons. And Bobby became obsessed by the attention and made teasing remarks that he was so much better than his brother. That sounds familiar. It's <laughs> the same thing with me and my brother. My brother was always better than I was. Yeah. Yeah. No, me and my brother both have podcasts. How many listeners does he have? Probably more because it's a football. Oh, yeah. It's a football. Sports. Sports ball podcast. Sports. And I'm not plugging him either. (laughs) Get your own listeners. Get your own listeners. And his name is TJ too. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Bobby became more and more interested in different ways to entertain. He started learning the ukulele and bought a ventriloquist dummy. The dummy looked like Howdy Doody, and the dummy act was a big hit. His parents were also musically inclined. Bobby's mother played the piano and was actually very good. She could play songs like Down Yonder with a, and this is not my words, with a lot of white man's soul. I pulled that from the book. So if you have a problem with it, write Randy. Yeah. Bobby's father loved music too, and he could actually hit a few bluegrass songs like Turkey and the Straw on the fiddle. And we talked about, in the, the first time we tried to record this, we actually talked about the difference between a violin and a fiddle. What was it again? All fiddles are violins,
2: but not all violins are fiddles. So a fiddle is... Basically
1: the bourbon? Is
2: a, yeah. Of
1: the musical world?
2: Yeah. Like, it's it's just a variety of violin, a little bit smaller, all... Yeah.
1: Is there a higher tone with a fiddle, too? Probably. Yeah.
2: If you know... I mean, if you've ever listened I listen to the fiddle versus a violin, yes.
1: Because they're smaller. Yeah. Yeah, but it's weird because like you look at a violin and you could basically turn a violin into a fiddle, but it's like toast. It's bread when it goes into the toaster, but when it comes out, it's toast. It's no longer bread. Right. It changes. If you put cake into the oven, it's still cake. Get it? You're
2: getting way too deep, man. (laughs) But yes, that is another example that all toast... (laughs) Is bread, but not all bread is toast.
1: Exactly. (laughs) I am punchy right now. I'm so sorry. You are sleepy. I'm I'm giddy. We're like, we're only on page two. So much for this whole, but it's only like 12 pages, so we'll be done fast. I I do not see that happening. (laughs) Well, let's jump forward. Around (laughs) 1954, it was time for another promotion, and Bobby's father got offered a position in Salt Lake City, Utah. And it was on the road to their new home. And I should say, on this this trip, this specific trip, they did not want to leave Farmington. Farmington was like a haven for them. It was heaven. It was the best place on earth. So when they were getting transferred to Salt Lake City, there were a lot of tears, a lot of fights, a lot of stress. It was a really dark time. Like, they did not want to move. It was, they fought it tooth and nail.
2: I don't know what it was like back then, but I was just there. It was really pretty.
1: Yeah, I, well also you're dealing with children. Well, yes. Who at this point in their life they're they're doing things that they love and they've got friends and they're in school and like they're starting their musical journey. Yeah. And that's to be true. uprooted and thrown into a city that you don't know anything about and I'm guessing it was like more more city than it was country because it sounds like Farmington was kind of no. like No.
2: I mean, yeah, it's big city now, but there's still quite a bit of country there. Like it's it's definitely a lot of Wilderness, it's beautiful.
1: Yeah, but imagine it in the the '54 when this is happening, and so less city. No, I'm guessing more city for Salt Lake City to moving to Salt Maybe Lake City versus Farmington, Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Is like it's a whole different environment with new people and having to basically start all over again. So they they had huge fights, blow ups. It was bad, and so. It was on the road to their new home when Bobby's mom turned on the car radio and it was Elvis singing, That's All Right. And they had never heard this kind of singing before and they actually forgot all about the move. Now that's what I want to do someday, Bobby said. And his brother's retort was, yeah, that'll be the day. Your eyes are sunk back in your head too far and you don't have enough intelligence. And then Bobby's father had to pull the car over to break up the fight. (laughs) At the time, Salt Lake City didn't have any sports. The choices were running track or playing music. And, of course, both Bobby and Randall chose music. Bobby decided on the trumpet and was put into the band. And his mom and dad made Randall play the trombone so he could be like Tommy Dorsey. Bobby also decided to take up the drums, and he became one of the best drummers in all of Salt Lake. When he started high school at Granite High in 1957, he played in a jazz trio in a coffee house, which was another name for a beatnik joint in those days. And Randall recalls, I'll never forget... That Bobby didn't want my dad to know that he was playing there. Dad thought that he was playing in a cafe. And then when he found out what it was, he blew his stack. He wanted us to play music, but he didn't want us to have a night a nightclub musician's lifestyle. Beatniks. Gotta love a beatnik. <laughs> I just, I'm just trying to picture what happens at an actual beatnik club. Because all I'm saying is like dudes in turtlenecks and berets smoking cigarettes and talking about the man. And other things. I'm assuming that the lifestyle that he's actually talking about is, like, the staying out late, the drinking, the drug use, the women, that right kind of thing. I, I get that. But I don't know what, like, the, the cafe, like, the legitimate cafe that he thinks he's there, playing in. There aren't going to be any bongos in his household. <laughs> you can play the drums.
2: You can play the cornet.
1: But there will be no bongos.
2: No bongos for you,
1: Bobby. Out the door with those bongos. <laughs> Bobby actually progressed so fast on drums that his teacher was trying to talk Bobby's parents into sending him to Juilliard, which I hear is a good school for music. Yeah, it's all right. When he was old enough. And he said that he had a special gift. Bobby ended up playing drums in a jazz group with a gifted piano player by the name of Larry Jackson, who later moved to El Paso and got a job doubling duets in concert with George Shearing. And if you don't know who George Shearing is, he is also a famous pianist. So, there you go. He'll, we'll probably have an episode on him because he, he died at the age of 91 and he worked pretty much his whole life for, I think, MCA. So, oh, okay. Yeah. He was pretty prolific. Those are the fun episodes for me, though. Like, the ones where we don't know anything about them. <laughs> like, I didn't know anything about Bobby Fuller except for how he died. And Which so, is, we don't know how he died. Yeah. But... <laughs> So I, I, this part of the story has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on Bobby's life or his musical career. I just thought it was so funny that I just kind of threw in an abridged version. Um, one Christmas, Bobby was actually given a chemistry set. And they started, him and his brother and a couple of their friends, started making this thing called a cracker ball, which is basically a bomb. And so they would, oh, lovely. they would go to this warehouse and they just steal ingredients for this cracker bomb and they put it all together and they would like set it off in parking lots and stuff. And so one day they built one, like a pretty big one and then they set it in the basement and I guess it was either super hot or something was supercharged, but it exploded and it blew up the whole basement. like the windows were shattered, doors were off hinges.
2: You are grounded
1: forever, kid. Yeah, you, you don't ever get to leave the house or have... You get to live in that blown up basement. Yep. Good luck. Forever. Good luck with the spiders and
2: snakes. Well, <sighs> you wouldn't have to worry about it because they blew them all up. Yep. For at least a
1: couple days. <laughs> yeah. Again, in 1957, Bobby's dad came home from work and sadly he told his mother that the gas company wants me to transfer to El Paso. And this upset everyone. Bobby was 14 at this point and his younger brother was 13. So I guess one had had their birthday and one hadn't had their birthday yet because that's only a year. Bobby's mom really freaked out about El Paso and no one could really understand why. And pretty much her her whole thing was when she had lived in El Paso, it had been nothing but trauma and tragedy for her. So she never wanted to go back again. So when the when the time came for them to move back to El Paso, she kind of freaked out. And after Farmington and Salt Lake, El Paso was not a letdown. Both Bobby and his brother started school at Burgess High School and began their whole musical process over again. And they just tried to fit in just as they had when they moved from Farmington to Salt Lake, Lubbock. Like, they're they're constantly on the move. And so it's just restarting the whole fitting in, catching up, being able to learn process, which I can't imagine is easy. Well, no. Of course Bobby became one of the more popular students And he was put in the senior band right away And I believe his brother was actually put in the junior band Uh. But he was like the first saxophonist So he was happy It's a
2: long way from them piano days Where Randy was so much better, huh? Oh,
1: just wait Bobby's grades were on a steep decline since Salt Lake City, and his his last report card showed nearly failing grades at the end of ninth grade, where he had started the year as an A-B student. In fact, Bobby was never much of a student, and he barely kept his grades above C-level. S-E-A-level? C-level? Ah. <laughs> as evidenced by his misspelling of common words in many of Bobby's handwritten notes. You just leave the puns to me, lady. Fine. Regardless, as a newcomer, it didn't take long for Bobby to impress the other kids. And (laughs) I didn't know this was a thing, but apparently it's a thing, is that there was a school drum battle. So, like, one kid would step up, play the drums, and then, you know, another kid would step up and play something and add to it and play it better and... And this was a thing. And so Bobby was like begging these older kids for a chance. And so the seniors were like, you dumb kid. No. So they were having this drum battle that these kids are like denying Bobby the opportunity to play. And so finally he begs enough and someone passes the sticks to him. And he like strides over to the drums, demonstrates his abilities with power and confidence. And after that, Bobby gained a reputation as one of the hottest drummers in town. Woohoo. But he's like 15 at this point. He is still a child at this. Like, but he well, showed yeah. up all the seniors. Okay, so the family was moved uh, in, in 1958. The family was forced to move again. And again, they were forced to fit into new schools and new relationships. So this is home number four, four or five that he's had to go through. Well, so this is still in El Paso, right? Yeah. Okay. In El Paso, Bobby had many interests, including a pet squirrel that they kept in the garage and soapbox derby racing. However, after Bobby failed to win several races, he lost interest because he wasn't good enough at it. (laughs) I get that, though. It's not fun if you're no good at it sometimes. We should do pros and cons because I'm like, no, you stick with it until you become amazing. Only if you care enough to do that. If it's
2: just something that you picked up just to have fun and you're not good at it and now it's frustrating, why would you keep doing it?
1: To change the world. (laughs) (laughs) all right brain (laughs) at this point bobby's big brother jack had been in several altercations and during this time tommy lafleur his his jack's father right had passed away due to alcoholism i believe and pneumonia and so it was kind of compounded and he didn't die like a violent death. He would, he, it was like a natural cause. Well, as natural Natural-ish. as you can get. Yeah. yeah. And the death of his father only compounded Jack's agitation. And because of this, Jack was admitted to a mental hospital. Oh. And it seems like after he's let out, he spends a lot more time with Bobby and his family. Probably a good thing. Yeah. Probably, probably helpful. Helpful. But Bobby began playing the drums in a band with Jim Reese, who would actually become really an integral part of the Bobby Fuller story, as well as part of the 1950s and 1960s El Paso rock and roll scene before Bobby's climb to fame. And Jim played in the legendary Counts of Thunder fame. Legendary Counts of Thunder fame. I have to say it like that, or it just doesn't sound right when it comes out of your mouth. The legendary Counts of Thunder fame. Fame? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's the whole band. Oh, like famous part of the name? <laughs> I, I, you can't tell. I, am going off of a book, and I can't ever tell. Because then he only refers to them as the Counts. But Bobby played with the Counts from time to time. Correct. And the Counts played all of the local teen spots from the bowling alleys to school dances. But the high point of their career was actually landing a gig with the city parks department which actually provided the band with a flatbed truck and power hookup, so they could set up at local shopping centers each week. That's cool. Yeah, I know. But it came from, like, the parks department. Community outreach, maybe? Maybe. Jim was quoted as saying, back then, El Paso had a real problem with the kids running the streets and stuff. So the city supplied us with a flatbed truck and power to run our equipment, and we would pass the hat, which basically saying, like, you know, they'd, they'd try to collect money from... Yeah, the the people that were like hanging out and listening to their music. So right, because I guess they weren't actually getting paid by the city to perform these; they were just given this the way to do it.
2: Yeah, but still, it's something, and it gets them out there. And I mean, I'm not, I'm generally not one to for the whole I can play for free; it's great exposure. But at the same time, they're kids, and that is good exposure for them. And yeah, you pass the pass the hat or the bucket of
1: love. As we call it a Joe's, a tip bucket, you know. Mm-hmm. We used to have a tip jar when I worked at Starbucks that said, thanks a latte. Nah. <laughs> Second pun of the night. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps the city happy because all the kids were in one place and not running crazy in the street, causing grief. These shopping center shows actually got pretty wild. One time we played and the police estimated that we had 3,000 kids dancing in the parking lot. Really, we were the only real rock band in town as the Rhythm Ayers, which was one of the bands in town were more of a Mexican soul band and the Rock Kings were which were the other band were more soul influenced too. So really like the Counts were the only real rock game in town. So it was really the only outlet for these kids. The Counts eventually broke up because Willie Wilson the drummer and somebody else in the band stole a case of beer off of a beer truck and they had the choice of joining the army or going to jail. They joined the army. So basically they they took up the black. <laughs> they became the Night's Watch Nice The next version of the band was the Royal Lancers Also funny story I don't know if I'll I'll cut what I said before But I basically Because of dyslexia Basically I kind of dictate The script to Will mm-hmm. And every time I said a new band name He would either laugh or groan Yeah you told me that <laughs> <laughs> He was just like Bands in the 50s and 60s had The worst names I don't know. Some of them were kind of fun. Well, I'll get to that. (laughs) I'll actually get to that. I mean, I get it's not as
2: cool as like smashing pumpkins and stuff, but you know. As early as
1: 1959 and into 1960, three-fourths of the Bobby Fuller 4, Bobby, Jim, and Dalton, were making noise in a band together, although in very different formations. Normally, we don't get to a life-shaking event as early as we do, because something happens right now that I feel contributes a lot to Bobby's story. And I know that this tangent goes off for a little bit, but I feel like it was very important. Right. So, Bobby's mother had a vision of death that his older brother... Bobby's mother had visions of the death of his older brother, Jack. So she would have visions of Jack dying, Jack being assaulted, left alone. Like, she would have these reoccurring visions... And, unfortunately, they actually came to fruition. Aww. It was Sunday, February 5th, 1961, and Bobby had come home that Sunday for dinner. His mother said, I wonder where Jack is. And Bobby said, don't worry, he'll be here. Jack had never been late before. Bobby's father got home from golf, which he played every Sunday. And Bobby let him know that his brother had not shown up yet. Bobby's father said that he had had this strange feeling all day that something bad was going to happen. And that night, Jack never came home. His mother said that she knew something awful had happened to to Jack. And Bobby said that he was probably over in Juarez getting drunk. And she replied, no, no, oh, God, no. I know that something awful has happened to Jack. This went on and on late into the night. And then finally, the family was actually able to get to sleep. And an hour went by, and Bobby's mom woke up screaming. She said, I saw his spirit at the foot of my bed. Jack said that he hit his head and that it killed him. From there, Bobby's mother went into a deep depression. And they, they basically told her it was a bad dream. And she kept screaming, he's dead, he's dead. I know Jack is dead. I saw his spirit at the foot of my bed. I mean, can you imagine? Like, not like, like even before something happens, knowing something's going to happen, and then you have this vision. Because I don't doubt, I, I'm a very strong believer in the paranormal, so I don't doubt that she had this vision Right. And that he she had seen what she saw.
2: Oh, I don't either. I mean, we're both, we both have had runs with stuff similar, stuff in that realm, I should say. Yeah. So I don't doubt it, and that would be terrible.
1: So her depression actually got worse, and the next day the family doctor came over to give her medication. And it's so weird to think at some point, like, you didn't go to Kaiser and see a doctor, and then he prescribed you something. Like, the doctor came to your house, And just, like, handed you pills. House
2: calls. And if she was really severely
1: depressed, then she probably wasn't getting out of bed. That's true. This is one of those, like, different time kind of things where, like, we can't imagine it actually happening. Could you? Because we have ambulance services now. (laughs) Like, you just can't call up your doctor and be like, can you please come over and see me? It's impractical.
2: Sometimes. But, yeah. Most of the time. It's impractical. But in certain cases, maybe. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I don't know. So, Bobby and his dad went over to Juarez to see if Jack was in jail again with no luck. When they got back, Bobby filed uh, Bobby's dad filed a missing persons report with the police and they had to sedate his mother because she was so hysterical at this point that she wasn't eating, she wasn't sleeping, she was super depressed and so they 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 would give her a sedative and just like knock her out. Several days went by and there was no word from Jack. Two detectives came by the house and questioned Bobby's parents. Jack was missing, and as time went on, the detectives actually started to suspect foul play. That's no good. After three weeks, the police called. They had arrested a man in Lubbock who was driving Jack's 57 Chevy. The young man named Roy Leon Handy had said that he had bought the car, but again, the police suspected foul play. The man told them that he bought the car from Jack and then drove Jack to the border and left him there. And that didn't make sense because Jack worked really hard to get that car. And Bob's Bobby's dad didn't believe Roy's testimony because that doesn't make any sense. You know, it. so it's 1961 and he's driving a 57 Chevy and he saved up all his money and, and he was just like, sell it to a guy, and have him leave him at the border. That doesn't make Yeah, that doesn't make any, any sense, sense unless you're
2: running for some reason. Yeah. But even then, you probably take that car with you. Yeah. Take yourself to the border. Yeah, exactly. I guess unless, like, I mean, I guess it could make sense if it's like, oh, well, he's running from some sort of trouble, and he needed the cash to start over in Mexico, so let me take him to the border and then drop him off.
1: Yeah, but his, I could see how Roy would try to get away with that.
2: But especially if he's been established as somebody that gets in a lot of trouble.
1: Yeah. And Jack did get into a lot of trouble. He would get right. into run-ins with the law. He was put into a mental institution. But still, he has a family. But the family that was... knew. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm saying like they, they he has a family that's actively looking for him.
2: Right. And the family knows that that he kind of was working to turn himself around and that that was probably not likely if he worked that hard to get the car and then not
1: tell anybody. Exactly. And I don't have exactly why they arrested Roy, but I'm assuming they tracked the car and arrested him for having the car.
2: Right. As a person of interest, maybe.
1: Yeah. 21-year-old Roy Leon Handy was then transferred by the police to Alamogordo The police approached Bobby's father and asked if he could drive to New Mexico to talk to Roy and try to get him to confess. Which I don't think would ever happen now, would it? I have no idea. If you're in law enforcement, tell me if this is like a thing that still happens to like try to bring in the family to get a a confession out of someone. I would imagine. I'd be really interested in that, though. Because, I I mean, I just assume that there would be like legality issues.
2: Yeah, but I think,
1: I mean, I don't know.
2: I have no idea, but I would imagine that could be... That would be a useful tactic if you... Because a lot of times, like, if you're faced with... You can lie to the police, but if you're faced with the family members and they're grieving,
1: you may break, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I'd be really interested to find out, though, if that's if that's still a thing that legally can be done. On February 25th, which was Bobby's mother's birthday, Bobby's dad went with the detectives to New Mexico. They took him into an interrogation room face-to-face with Roy... And after an intense interrogation, Roy finally admitted killing Jack. And I really pared that down. But basically, Bobby's dad looked Roy in the eye and said, Do you have a mother? How would you feel if someone killed you and left you alone to to decompose in the middle of nowhere? How would you feel? And it was this really moving thing and... I don't know why I cut it, but that's I'm just putting it back in here. But he basically took his words as a father and put them on Roy, and it was actually very moving. Hmm. Yeah. So Roy admitted to killing Jack. I killed Jack, Mr. Fuller, and I'm, uh, it's on an Indian reservation between Tolarosa and Ruiz Diso, New Mexico. I'm so sorry if I'm butchering those names. I do apologize. Bobby's father broke down. He then returned to El Paso, where he broke the news to Bobby and his family. The story was that Roy met Jack early Sunday morning, February 5th, at the bus depot. They started talking, and they actually had a lot in common, so they decided that they were going to go target shooting in the desert. On the way to target shooting, he saw what looked like $1,000 worth of money in Jack's sun visor, and that's when Roy made up his mind to kill Jack. However, the money in the sun visor wasn't real money at all. It was a present of play money that Jack had purchased for the little boy next door. Aww. Yeah. So they took turns setting up targets, and when it was Jack's turn to set up, Roy opened fire on him. He shot him four times, one in the back, uh, sorry, one in the back of the arm and three in the back when he ran. So he, he shot him in the arm once, three times in the back, And then he couldn't run anymore, so he dropped to the ground, and Roy shot Jack once more in the back of the head and left his body to decay. When they found Jack, his pockets were turned inside out, and his body was so black and bloated that you could hardly recognize him. After hearing the news, Bobby's mother slipped into an even deeper depression so much that the family was afraid that she might attempt suicide. One night, she actually got out. And a man brought her home And said that she tried to jump in front of his car While he was driving She was placed under a doctor's care And administered shock treatment
2: mm, No
1: Yeah That's After okay. a few weeks She was uh, After a few weeks She was institutionalized And then after the the bouts of shock treatment The doctors felt like she was Solid enough to come home And then Bobby started as a freshman In North Texas State uh, Sorry, North Texas State College in Denton just up from dallas when he came home from easter bobby decided that he wasn't going to go back to school and i'm not really sure where because jack was murdered in february and i'm assuming that he had gone to school in the fall the earlier year and this whole thing happened during the school year so when he came home from school on easter he just decided to stay with his family Okay, that's kind of how I read it. So if I'm wrong, that I'm sorry. That's how I could just kind of interpreted it. So with everything that was going on in Bobby's life, I guess he just decided to kind of walk away from school. But according to, which understandable. I mean,
2: well, you just found out your big brother was brutally murdered and left to rot in the desert.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean this. I mean, he was a thousand dollars. Not even an actual thousand yeah, dollars. A perceived thousand dollars. A perceived thousand dollars. I mean, and it was brutal, too, and premeditated. Right. So I, I can imagine, like, school not being a priority. Kind of, uh, no. Yeah. According to Lynn Miley, a Dallas high schooler, he was partying during spring break. And here's a fun little fact. Cause I had to look this up. They actually called it Splash Day in Galveston, where she met Bobby. So it wasn't like spring break. It wasn't called spring break. It was called Splash Day. Okay. So like a day instead of a week. I no. I guess it was. I guess it was longer than a day because it, he was a freshman and she was a high schooler at Hillcrest, and they happened to be staying at the same house in Galveston that week. So I guess it was like a week so long just, thing. Yeah. All right. Yeah.
2: Maybe Splash Days would have been a better name.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Quick to the time machine. And tell these people <laughs> to pluralize your words. <laughs> They became incredibly close, and they actually got engaged. And she was his date for the senior prom and the all-night senior party. And they used to sit up and think of names for the band that Bobby wanted to form. <laughs> this really, I was tickled by this. Some of the names were the Fuller's of Fairies <laughs> and, and Bobby Fuller and the Empties. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I love that one. That is maybe my favorite thing that we ever like, said on the podcast.
2: I feel like that's just like something that we would do on a regular basis because it's 11 o'clock at night and we're tired and we're making up <laughs> stupid things to say. Yep. So I could see that
1: being a, a potential band name they came up with one night. So he put a down payment on a beautiful diamond ring and then something happened. Bobby went back home to El Paso and Lynn never heard from him again. So I'm guessing what happened was they had the spring break splash day, Easter thing. And then the whole Jack thing happened and he just went home and never came back. Yeah. Which, you know, that would greatly affect you and change you. In 1962, Bobby had actually, we were talking about this earlier in 1962, Bobby had already seen action on the Yucca label as an uncredited drummer. He played with future Bobby Fuller four member, Jim Reese and Dalton Powell, having recorded both sides Almost Blue and Jim Jives in his bedroom on an apex rig bought by the K H E Y radio engineer, Rob Matthews. So, K Hey! K Hey! <laughs> Jinx. Yeah. I'll get you a Diet Coke. Yeah. Subsequently, that group ended up backing Bobby on a, a pair of custom pressed original composition solo side recorded in the Fuller living room in the utterly Holly esque Guess Will Fall in Love. Backed up with the upbeat You're in Love, co-crafted by Bobby with neighbor Lady Mary Stone. I want to know if that's her legal name or if that's like one of those women of whimsy, you know, Mm. that wear like the... Could be one or the other. That wear a wrap on their head with like a jewel in the center.
2: I mean, lady is a name
1: too, can be. Of a dog. (laughs) Back to Bobby. So Local Chatter shot their first solo effort up to the number two spot on local radio station, KELP. And yes, that is Kelp. (laughs) Bobby's first published interview was in the Racer Roundup, the Mimograph-Ross Intermediate School newspaper on March 30th, 1962. He said that he had one record out, You're in Love, and that a new record was due out in two weeks. Bobby also stated, For the Record... That it was his dream to visit Easter Island That his favorite movie was Spartacus And that he would love to have Jerry Lewis's humor And Judy Garland's performing abilities And that his favorite pastimes were Water skiing and chess Bobby claimed in this interview that he also met Zsa Zsa Gavor but that claim Could not be corroborated (laughs) Where would he have met her? It doesn't matter that story cracks me It also says he was water He loved water skiing and chess Well maybe he does at no point in the story did I actually find that, ever. Maybe he was just uh, BSing. Yeah. <laughs> Fuller had formed a band with his brother, Randy, on bass, who had joined on the condition that they could play fast songs like Richie Valley's La Bamba. And we will be doing an episode on Richie Valens as well. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to like it because the way he died was my nightmare. <laughs> like, legit my nightmare. Plane crash.
2: Ah, we do a lot of plane crashes.
1: And I, I've i covered one, you've covered one. Yeah, there's a lot more out there. And when we do our entire month-long series on the day the music died. Yep. Yep.
2: Every single episode.
1: Yep. Not, not looking forward to having those dreams. Nope. While Randy like Valens, the first Chicano rock star, Bobby was obsessed with Buddy Holly. That's what I was saying. He admired Buddy Holly so much that there was a rumor going around that if Buddy Holly wore one blue sock on one foot and one red on the other, Bobby would do the same. Bobby insisted that his band use Fender equipment because that's what Holly had. And he liked to unwind after shows by playing a guessing game using the names of Holly's songs.
2: But it's just so funny that he's so he's so into Buddy Holly when they're... Peers, They're around the same age. They
1: went to the same school, like, for a minute anyways. I don't actually know if they ever got to meet each other. That could, yeah. And I think Buddy Holly was a little bit older. I think that he was in, like, elementary school. Oh, When Buddy was in high school. Oh, okay. But he kind of revered him and looked up to him. I mean, we're podcasters, but I have a huge pod crush on Rachel and Desi. (laughs) Well, see, yeah, that's true. And I've never gotten to meet them, and I believe that I am older than them. Yeah, okay. But it's really cute that he would actually, like, play guessing games with, like... Which meant for anyone to be successful at the game that Bobby liked to play, they would also have to be really exposed to Buddy Holly's music. Holly, who actually died in 1959, was a natural influence. He blazed a path out of Lubbock, Texas, which was where Bobby was originally from, well, close to where he was from, by experimenting with home recording techniques, melding disparate styles, the syncopation of R&B, the longing twang of country, into dreamy, upbeat songs. For Fuller, he represented a future attainable by wishing, puttering, and leapfrogging over the dusty El Paso present. That was clearly not my words. (laughs) That came from the book. Even though there was music going on all the time at the Fuller home, the neighbors were reasonably tolerant. I can recall one time when people complained, said Mrs. Fuller. The police came over, but they ended up liking the music and they stayed a while to listen. <laughs> That's <laughs> cool. That's really cool.
2: Especially in comparison to, like, the Sublime story.
1: Where, like, the police knew the guy by name and would just, like, break up every party. that'd be like, enough, go home. The Fuller family built an in-home studio. And, I mean, at this point, They poured a 40 by 4 foot slab of cement in the backyard up against a rock wall and built a 2 by 4 frame, 4 foot high and 4 foot wide. So basically like a shed, pretty much, with plywood and siding and shingles for roofing. But on the inside, they nailed linoleum on the sides and ceiling, and then they stuck a mic at one end and a speaker at the other in hopes of getting a unique sound. And by all accounts... It worked really well. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, they. it seems like they had to go through a lot more than we had to go through to create music. Well, a little bit. Yeah. They continued with experimentation, including a tiny control booth constructed in the back of their attached garage. There were wires all over the house, as mom said. So basically, just to kind of make a cohesive thing, pretty much his family were really supportive in him wanting to create music. They continued with experimentation, including a tiny control booth constructed in the back of their attached garage. There were wires all over the house, as mother said. "That, that She's a patient woman. Yeah. On July 21st, 1962, the Christmas in July dance in Huco, I'm probably saying that wrong, but Huco was billed as Bobby Fuller and his Combo, again with the names. <laughs> Admission was $2 and I did the inflation calculator and that's $20.92. So about 20 bucks today. Yeah. Plus 50 cents per guest for beer, chips and booze with bourbon and scotch furnished. So like what, 25 bucks
2: or something like that? Something like that. 25-30 bucks for everything. That's actually not bad if you're getting alcohol and food in- included.
1: Well, I think it was $20 to get in and then another $0.50 to get all the stuff. So, yeah. Right. So, like, 25 bucks. That's not bad. No. By September, Bobby became the one and only Bobby Fuller, El Paso's own recording star in a show at the Continental Ballroom on Carlsbad Highway. Come, you all. And that was what the poster said on it. Ah, cute. So at this point, the lineup for the Bobby Fuller 4 came to fruition. And I found kind of dueling timelines with this. So I will say, at this point, I still think that Dalton was part of the, the Bobby Fuller 4. But he would be replaced with Dwayne Kirko. And I think that comes up later. So that's where we're at. They were featured on KELP. DJ Steve Chronos's TV show, Kronos' Hop, which did a lot to hip teens to Bobby and the band. And I think the last time you asked me, like, you didn't understand what that meant. But it was like, I'm hip to you. Well, I mean, I get what hip means, but it's just a
2: weird turn of phrase. Because to, like, be hip to something, but to get teen, hip to the band, I don't know. <laughs> it's just... A weird turn of phrase.
1: Yeah, a little, a little outdated. Yeah, this guy was the guy who wrote the book was written was a uh, was born in 1944. So I'd say his lingo is probably a little different than ours. Just a little bit. Just a little. My stars and goddess. Check out the Bobby Fuller Four. <laughs> John. Okay, I'm gonna butcher this last name. John Gallimore was an original fan going back to Bobby's earliest days on the Traps. Professed. Bobby was probably one of the most talented people that I've ever known. I remember a time at Irving High when he played the drums for the Embers and did a 10-minute solo. Yow! That was amazing. Also, that's a quote, so.
2: (laughs) 10 minutes is too long for a drum solo. Sorry, drummers.
1: That's a really...
2: That's, That's too long. That's a long time. That's...
1: That's like three songs worth of drum solo. That's too oh, much. Oh, fair enough. When he started playing the guitar and fronting the band, his abilities became more apparent. He had the best people working with him and them, which made them a bigger draw in the region. So basically, like he just kind of encircled himself with the best people, like the best musicians, best engineers, best everything, and it made him better and it made them better. Which
2: is what you want.
1: Yeah. That's why I got you as my my pod sis, because I knew you would make me better. Aww. (laughs) First time I remember talking to Bobby in early 62 at a club in Juarez called The Lobby. I was there celebrating my 16th birthday with some of my friends when Bobby showed up with his running mates. I was introduced to him by a mutual friend, and although I was just a kid and Bobby was a major talent, he was still pleasant. Not at all in the egocentric behavior that sometimes people displayed. He sat in with Long John's band while Long John Hunter sat with us and told us how Bobby was going to make it big time. And Hunter was so right about that. It was a great time to be involved in the El Paso music scene, and let me say how lucky I feel to have been there. I left El Paso in May of '63 to go to the United States Air Force. I missed that part where Fuller, I missed that part where Fuller found nationwide fame, but I was glad to have been there in the early days. I was based in Germany where we used to listen to a radio program that played the Billboard Top 10 rock and roll tunes. Imagine my surprise when in February of 66 they played I Fought the Law. Fantastic. What a moment. I just thought that was like a really cool story that I really wanted to include that like even when he was big, he was really nice to his fans. Like he was just like a super cool dude. There was a lull in home recordings in the early months of 1963 as Bobby managed to land an extended tour of the Southwest on the strength of regional chart action with Not Fade Away and Nervous Breakdown. Bobby, Randy, Jim, and Dalton, so see Dalton is still in there, ventured as far west as Fresno, California, where the band had a stint for several weeks at a country western club. They returned home to El Paso only briefly and then left again for a three-week gig in Hobbs, New Mexico. By this time, there were bands everywhere, and local shopping centers featured frequent Battle of the Bands. And showing up for the prize money were combos like, oh, hold on to your hats, because these are some spectacular bands. I I love these band names. I think they're fun. Ray and the Valiants, Joe Richie and the Rooks, and the Intruders. Nice. Bobby was already billing himself as the rock and roll king of the Southwest and winning battles with ease. He was also recording many of the local bands and even issued records for a couple of them on his own label. And people think that Bobby was being kind of sly when he would do this because he would invite them to his home for a free session. And people kind of surmise that what he was doing was inviting these rival bands to his place to record a session for free And then he would pick up on like their style and their tricks and get tips from them. So he would actually become better. So he would actually know how to beat them because he would know their like secrets. That's kind of clever, actually. Yeah. And at this time, he befriended future Led Zeppelin sound engineer Terry Manning. And the two started changing, uh, exchanging ideas about songs and recording. So the time had come for Bobby to test the waters out on the West Coast. Surf music was ruling the planet in 1963, and this is songs like Pipeline, Burst Out, and Wipe Out, and a slew of other surf instrumentals were writing the charts, and it was now or never. Bobby decided to go to California and play some shows and meet with record companies if they would allow it. They bought a 54 Ford station wagon and rented a U-Haul and loaded up their musical equipments and let out for good old Hollywood. And right after they arrived, they met with two brothers who were booking agents. They took a chance and booked the the on-the-beach at the Old Hermosa Biltmore Hotel in Hermosa Beach, California. They wanted to play surf music for all the surfers that came in at night to dance. And so they got free rooms, meals, and beers. (laughs) And that was their payment, I guess. They got to lay out on the beach all day and surf and learn the surfer ways, which is in quotation marks. So I feel like there's something in the surfer ways. Most likely. We didn't have to play on Mondays and Tuesdays, so those days we would drive into Hollywood and hit up all the record companies. We left copies of our records at Capitol, RCA, and other top labels. Bobby felt that they really had a shot, and Bobby's motto was, If Ricky Nelson can do it, so can I. (laughs) After they burned through every major label that they could find in the phone book, Bobby said, Come on, let's go back to Hollywood and talk to Bob Keen at Delphi Records again. They got to the office and introduced themselves to the secretary, Millie Hemphill. At that point, Bob was actually heading out of his office and Millie just took that time to introduce the band and surprisingly Bob gave them the time of day. So, I mean, that doesn't really happen where like it was just one of those happenstances where like they walked in, introduced themselves, and it just so happened that Bob was walking out and when he met the guys, he was like, All right, come on in. Well, that's nice. Bob allowed them to play, and after hearing the band, Bob said that they were good, but they weren't quite there yet. He suggested that they go practice for a year and then come back. I love this. I love how he put this in the book. After all the rejection and a Texas-style fight with their managers, and if you go into the book, uh, apparently what goes into a Texas-style fight is throwing a beer bottle so hard at someone's head that it sticks into the wall. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> Bobby and the band returned home with a burning desire to help the weary ones see the light by recreating the wild California surf scene right there in Lubbock, Texas. Bobby wrote a lot of this time, and the West Coast experience was apparent on such surf and turf opuses as Highway 101, which means he's not actually from California because we don't call it the 101. Well, we don't call it Highway 101. We call it the 101. The 101. Hang Ten, and Winter Surfing, possibly an early version of King of the Beach, none of which were ever committed to tape, which is kind of a bummer because he wrote all these like kind of cool surfer songs that never got recorded. Then how do we know? Oh, yeah, because Randy wrote the book. Yeah. <laughs> and the, I mean, like the sheet music probably still exists for it, too. That's possible. So. The great Rockin' Bodine did make it to tape, as did the superb Holly-ish Pamela and Angel Face, and Jenny Lee did as well, so he did record those three songs. At this time, Bobby joined a new band with Larry Thompson, and Larry was responsible for naming the band, which was the Frantics. Okay, I'm saying it that way because this is very important. It was a name out of Seattle, it, the the original Name The Frantics was a name out of Seattle And that band split up And got different members And with that logic They became the Southwest Frantics Bobby went out and had a banner made For the band However the banner came back With the name Fanatics (laughs) Whoops That's kind of a big thing to mess up Yeah and apparently it was A big enough sign and cost enough money Where Bobby was like mad that they had made a mistake on the sign, but it was it was a big sign. So the band just changed their name.
2: <laughs> so first of all, yes, that would be expensive. Second of all, the company should have offered to fix it at their own cost since they messed it up. Well, Vistaprint didn't exist. Customer so. service, y'all. Well, I'm betting this place doesn't exist anymore either.
1: <laughs> Messing up signs and not even fixing them. Yep, they made a band change their whole name. So Bobby got the wild idea to secure a vacant venue at the Hondo Village Shopping Center with the support of his parents. Again, like super cool parents. Yeah. They signed a lease for Bobby Fuller's Teen Rendezvous, a no-booze teen club where the fanatics would be the house band. A stage was built, and they installed an Altec sound system. Membership cards were printed, and decorations were purchased. And the $1,000 bank loan, and I did do the inflation calculator again for that, and that's $8,200.27 in today's money. That's still cheap. Yeah, it's still cheap, but it came through on the same week of President Kennedy's assassination. Aww. The impact of JFK's murder was spiritually devastating for the young and the old, and everyone of age remembers where they were on that day. Certainly no one was in the mood to go to a music dance club in the same state where Kennedy was shot. I kind of get that. I get that. And it took determination and pure grit to rehearse new material and get the teen club up and running while a nation was in mourning. Sure enough, on Monday, December 23rd, 1963, the doors opened at Bobby Fuller's Teenage Rendezvous with the fanatics, stomping through 10 days in a row, including Christmas Eve and Christmas Day night. Wow. Yeah. That's...
2: 10 days in a row is a lot. But if... But then also around the holiday. That's awesome.
1: And not just that, but it's a new club. So... Yeah. They've still got their growing pains and things that they've got to figure out. Like, oh, we didn't get enough soda because they don't serve booze. Like, think about, like, the growing pains of, like, we need more security. We didn't order enough of this. You know, we need to do the sound system. Like, that takes a lot to run a club. I can't even imagine. I wouldn't even know where to start.
2: Well, it might be a little easier for teenagers. It's just one big party. They're a little more forgiving because at
1: least they have some place to go. True, but Bobby now has to be a business owner and the entertainment. True. So it's a lot. Well, yes. So 10 days in a row. This culminated in a massive New Year's Eve blowout. Finally, El Paso had its own teen club complete with membership cards, regular dance contests, and its own cop to keep out the boring 21-year-old's. Because we're super lame. I was not boring at 21. I was amazing at 21. (laughs) Yeah. I used to be skinny and pretty. You're still pretty.
2: And spunky. (laughs) (laughs) I love you. Don't death glare me. Come on. That wasn't easy. That was low-hanging fruit, man.
1: (laughs) You know, just because it's low-hanging fruit doesn't mean it doesn't taste just as good. (laughs) Even though the clientele was mostly teenagers... Running a nightclub in El Paso was no small feat, and that's what we were saying. The city sat in the shadow of Juarez, where the disposable income conveniently doubled as proof of age and where the demographic was a mix of tourists, GIs, hustlers, sex workers, wayward debutantes, and teenage thrill-seekers tended to blur social conventions. I love, what is, I want to meet a wayward debutante. That sounds amazing. That's
2: like, she used to be a Deb, but not anymore.
1: So she's a deb not. Yeah. <laughs> third pun! Is it only the third? It's only the third of this episode. Oh, okay. Well, we're not doing too bad then. <laughs> Fist fights were just one more lively form of discussion. <laughs> I do love some of his like turn of phrases that he uses like that. Like the Texas-style fight. Yeah. This brand of fun tended to spill over the border and the fullers had to be ready for it they were no strangers to violence their half-brother jack had been shot to death at the age of 31 because we we covered that but they didn't borrow trouble either sometimes it just came looking for them once a gang that objected to the Juarez presence on its turf came in with sawed off lead-filled baseball bats and popped randy in one arm he chased the thugs out of uh, out into the parking lot where he kept a twenty two. Whoa! Of, yeah, he chased the thugs out into the parking lot with the twenty two he kept in his office. Luckily, Bobby had unloaded it. Yeah, because I might have shot a guy in the face.
2: My God!
1: Another time, Randy stopped a fight in front of the stage by clocking one of the combatants with a bass, and then coolly resumed playing as the guy was carried out. Bobby created. Exeter Records in 1964. I think it's Exeter. E-X-E-T-E-R. Exeter Records. Yeah. Yeah. Picking up where his previous label, Eastwood Records, left off, issuing several singles and one album. And there's a couple websites that mark it as nine singles or six singles. So I'm just going to go with what the book said, which is seven singles and one album. Some of the singles were.
2: I think it's best to use the book since it was written by someone that was there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm going to go with the book. Yeah. Some of the singles were Just As I Love Her by Bill Taylor and the Sherwoods, followed by Bobby's Own Wine, 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 and that is W-I-N-E, not not like mom, (laughs) and King of the Beach, The Ponds, South Bay, and Meet Me Here and Lonely. Don't Leave Me Here and Lonely. That's what it is. Meet me here in lonely by David Haynes and the Pawns. Bobby has started on she yes. Bobby had started on she's my girl, a new original which was popular with the kids in the club. So he would basically like write a song and then test it out at the teenage rendezvous, and then if it was good enough, he'd actually like lay it down. That's what I was kind of gathering from that story. Smart. It's very smart. It was. Brother Randy, who suggested that they record Cricket's Sonny Curtis's composition, I Fought the Law. And, of course, this will not be the last time that we hear about I Fought the Law. Because it was his biggest hit. Randy joked that the song had some personal meaning because of his run-ins with the local overbearing police officers. And so, if you know anything about music history, you'll know who was also with the Crickets. Buddy Holly. Rickstone recalled... I was at a recording session of I Fought the Law. Bobby set up everything, ran the whole show, and did all the work setting up and running things. He had to run through the den and then run through the garage into the storage room, which was his control booth. He had to—he had two Apex machines in there that he had built in some cubicles out of chicken wire and burlap just before that session. So he was really going for a home version of a real recording studio at this point. I got over to his place at about 9.30, and I'm not sure if that's 9.30 a.m. or 9.30 p.m., and Bobby was still working on it by 4.30. So, either way, that's a long time. Yeah, that's a very long session. Uh, Especially for one song, right? They would have to have some really understanding neighbors, though, if that was at night. It was pretty wild. I remember telling him to kiss my butt at one point. I guess he realized that it was actually his idea to do the song, so... He really didn't have room to say anything. Right. Because he was like, why don't you do this song? And then he was going to complain because they were doing the song. (laughs) 700 copies of the RCA custom pressing on Exeter started to make some noise in the region. Coupled with two subsequent pressings totaling 2,400 records brought up sales considerably, but not for long. So on July 18th, 1964... That would mark the last night for the rendezvous. After 76 nights of teenage heaven, Bobby, Randy, Jim, and Dalton unknowingly played their last bash there. The club got hit with a distress warrant in the following days and then by a lawsuit padlocked and rent due. The rendezvous was soon in arrears, but the records kept coming from the garage studio at Album Avenue. And I did take that part out, but the reason... The reason why Album Avenue is like a thing is he actually, Bobby actually lived on a street called Album Avenue. Did he live on the street called Album Avenue or did they just call that the like the shed area Album Avenue? No, it was actually the street that he lived on. That would be like us moving to a neighborhood called Podcast Lane. I mean, I'm sure in the future there probably will be a Podcast Lane. (laughs) But
2: (laughs) that'd be kind of funny. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Bobby signed up a group called The Pawns, which I actually mentioned before because they were in that group of um, the seven singles that were put out under Exeter Records. So they had The Pawns, who had won the Battle of the Bands concert at Bassett Center the week of August 21st on the heels of their Exeter release. Bobby immediately hooked up with guys in a club in Farmington where Jack and Gary were soon snagged, and so uh, Jack and Gary were part of The Pawns. And they were snagged up for a Durango, Colorado group called the Lords of London, which promised big money and Hollywood. Woohoo! The chapter on Bobby's Exeter label was about to close. As for all the singles and the one full LP that Bobby produced, that was a 1964 album by a folk rock trio called, oh, Cheese and Crackers, Los, Los Paisanos. The back of the LP States the facts and then some, and I quote Mr. Bobby Fuller of the Exeter Record Company at 9509 Album Avenue, El Paso, Texas, produced and directed this recording. Mr. Fuller, an outstanding popular vocalist in his own right, composes, sings, and records original material. Los Paisanos are indebted to Mr. Fuller for his able direction and sound engineering. A fuller production. Did he write that? I I'm pretty sure he did. But dude, like he had the talent to back it up, so I'm not mad at him. <laughs> Bobby booked steady local jobs for the fanatics through Halloween of 1964. It was traumatic for all of them to step down from the ruling scene of their own secure teen club roost, but they forged ahead. Road tripping to Carlsbad and Farmington and playing locally at Johnny Fairchild's Golden Key Club. During that time, Dalton Powell, who had been on the traps, was replaced by Dwayne Kirko. On October 23rd, 1964, the guys drove to Carlsbad again to play the women's club dance. They parked their Coravari Greenbrier van. I'm, I need to look that van up because I, I can only imagine that it's an important kind of van. But they went down the street to grab a bite. And God, this sucks so much. When they got back, they found the van emptied of most of its gear. Uh. Dwayne's beautiful, golden, sparkling Ludwig tom-toms were gone. As well as their Fender Showman amps, reverb units, and guitars. And according to a police report, a, a chromatic harmonica and a bag of guitar chords. Jim Reese recalls, when all of our guitars and amps were stolen, we had to go out and buy equipment on the spot. The shop we went to carried nothing but Fender guitars, and Bobby was happy because I had to get one. And as luck, if you can call it that, would have it, my new Fender guitar was soon stolen after that. I went out and got a Gibson for myself, and that really bothered Bobby. Well, yeah, because I don't know if you cut it out this time,
2: uh, but wasn't... Bobby obsessed with Fender because he was obsessed with Buddy Holly, who played
1: nothing but Fender. Yep. Yeah. The loss was another huge setback for Bobby. First, the teen club, and now all the equipment, most of which had been purchased on credit and was being paid off in weekly installments. So that was a financial setback for them as well. Well, yeah. Yeah. Back in El Paso, Bobby found a dream location for a new club just a few miles from the old Rendezvous. It was a big building with a loading dock and plenty of dance floor space. His dream to reopen a new place would never come to be. His parents, Lawson and Lorraine, afraid of new and bigger trouble. Because remember, they're they're like dealing with a ton of stuff. Like they, they co-signed for the loan for the club, which was $1,000. They've probably helped him purchase a ton of music equipment. They've given him a place to live. They... And their, their sons are kind of rowdy. So, afraid of new and bigger trouble, refused to co-sign for another loan for a new club. A series of incidents, both legal and personal, as well as all the band member switches, seem to kind of suggest that they make a change of venue. They had a going-away party the night before they left, said Dwayne. And this is a quote from Dwayne. We rented the place, and there were these Mexicans, the Starlighters, And they were playing upstairs, and we were playing the club downstairs. So it was a two-story club. And they rented out, and they played their own going-away party. Nice. The next morning, we took off for California in Mrs. Fuller's car. And that is where we're going to end Bobby Fuller Part 1. We will pick this up next week with Bobby Fuller Part 2. Please make sure to check us out next week where we finish up our story of Bobby Fuller. And uh, we still have a couple spots left on our Patreon groupie level. So if you want to have an episode fast tracked, uh, please feel free to give to our Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock and roll LT. You can find us on Facebook at rock and roll heaven pod. You can check out our Instagram where we post fun photos and you'll kind of get a spoiler for the episode to come there. And you can do that at Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Still not saying our website. And you can send us an email. Please feel free to reach out to us anytime you want. Just to say hi or to make a... I went through puberty during that. Hi. (laughs) Just to say hi to us or to give us a correction or, you know, anything. You have a cool story? Let us know. We like cool stories. Cool stories are cool. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And we do ask guys that if you listen to us on iTunes, that you hop over to the iTunes music store and please give us a ratings and review. It helps people see us more. It makes us more visible. So that way we can get the word out and keep doing the show and, and, you know, hopefully bringing you awesome stuff. So, yeah. So thank you guys so much for checking us out this week. Make sure to check us out next week. And yeah, when we finish the Bobby Fuller story when we're done with Bobby Fuller. So keep rocking in the free world, guys. See you next week.
2: <laughs> It'll probably get cut out, but there was a giant pause there, which is why I'm laughing.
1: <laughs> it wasn't just that. It was like, I was just like, oh yeah, podcast. Like, oh yeah, we're doing that still. Yeah, oh, yeah. cool. <laughs> All right, I'm going to try that one go more bed. time.
2: TJ. Yeah.
1: Take me home tonight.
2: You're Um, already home, so I can't. All right. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Bye.
1: Bye. (laughs) Look, we're done before 10.